A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description. Welcome back to That Podcast, in which we look at rituals, relationships, sex, and bodies, and which is definitely not safe for work and SFW, you guys, so do not listen to this with your kids. Tell them the highlights later in your own time. Before the break, we were talking about how the pandemic has affected relationships, how it's changed our interactions with porn, how more and more people's sex lives are moving into digital spaces, and what effect all of this has on sex culture and body image. And I feel like if we're talking about body image, sex, and sending each other lewd texts late at night, we gotta talk about the dick pic. For one of my Edinburgh shows, I had a really incredible artist that I know make a poster that was my face, but a collage made up entirely of dick pics that had been sent to me throughout the course of my single dating life. Lips, hair, skin, eyes, clothes, everything was made up of dicks. Well, I mean, actually, I almost had enough dicks to make my whole face from, but I was like a few short. So I asked my gay friend for his dicks and then I had way too many dicks actually, but he did help me make up the rest. It was a lot of dicks. But the dick pic is still kind of a mystery to me. I mean, I definitely get that men may be more visual and so they like getting pictures of things. So maybe they think, hey, here's what she's gonna like, a picture of my dick, because I would certainly like a picture of her anything. Or maybe it's a power move because like sometimes it's unsolicited and before the first high and that's just a bit like much. I've recently learned that sometimes men will airdrop you a picture of their dick completely unasked for just to strangers who happen to be on the same tube. Airdrop as in the iPhone technology, not like a World War II bomber, but to be fair, I think if someone actually parachuted me a dick pic, I'd be a lot more interested because points for creativity and pure pluck. But believe it or not, I think there's a deeper layer to dick pics that's about male body image. Like, when we talk about porn and sex, we talk a lot about female body image, and fair enough, because there's like a lot to unpack there that taps into thousands of years of oppression, but, to reflect on male body image in our culture, I spoke to someone who has literally written the book on dicks, my colleague, comedian Richard Herring. A lot of people uh, who are already familiar with your work know about the show. It's called Talking Cuck. It toured around the UK, Europe, Australia. It became a podcast, a book, and everything, a social global movement, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but for anyone who isn't familiar with Talking Cock, give us a little bit of background, if you would. Basically, I was doing my previous show, Christ on a Bike, in the Arts Theatre in London, and I was sharing the space with the Vagina Monologues. 
the vagina monologues was always heaving full of people and no one was coming to see my show about my relationship with Jesus as an atheist. <laughs> you know, I'd do the show and obviously the posters are up and I'd go and have a drink at the bar and pretty much every night someone would go, why don't you do a male version of the vagina monologues? And i go, no, I don't want to do it. Men don't need a show like that. And it would just be all sort of cavemen, chest-beating nonsense and it'd be rubbish. Then I started thinking of it because it was such an obvious idea that everyone was coming up with. I thought, well, why hasn't anyone ever done it? And I started thinking about whether men actually did need it because, you know, I think we talk endlessly and certainly I and many comedians talk endlessly (laughs) about our genitalia, but we rarely talk seriously about it. And I kind of realised, well, there might be something in this if you could approach this show sensitively and, and surprise people. And I kind of thought, well, maybe we can do an online survey and it's anonymous and I'll make it for men and women. Over the years, I think probably tens of thousands of people filled it in. It did confirm that men are suffering in silence over a, mm-hmm. a lot of issues that are really aren't important and really aren't things to worry about because we don't talk about it. So it made me understand the, the vulnerability of men a bit more and the, there's a lot of bravado with guys, I think. To talk about it honestly and openly, use humour which I think is very helpful for everyone, but especially men with something like yes. this. So if they're laughing, the bit that I always go back to was a bit in the show just about penile injuries. And there's a thing about ripping the banjo string, which is the little bit of skin at the top of the penis that connects the shaft to the head of the penis. Mm-hmm. And that can rip and mm-hmm. and it bleeds the a lot. Frenum, You've got an erection, right? it bleeds. The, yes, that's right. And it bleeds <laughs> a lot. And there was one oh. gig where a guy, this very hard-looking, tattooed, bald man, came back into the auditorium after the show looking for his cigarettes that he never found. And I was still on stage. He said, oh, I just wanted to say, you know, I thought I was the only one that had happened to. It was such a relief to hear someone else discuss that problem. Even with that, men just sort of assume they're the only person who's struggling with something. And most of the size issues, people with average to large penises are worrying about having tiny penises. A, there's nothing to worry about for the vast majority of people, and B, there's ways around all of the, all of these yes, issues anyway. Yes. But um, there was a question about, have you ever faked an orgasm for guys? Mm-hmm. I always struggled to come a little bit in the early years of my sexual history with other people. I was all right mm-hmm. on my own, but yeah. I was nervous and wasn't having much sex. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't come for ages and ages. So, like, I never faked an orgasm, but that I was aware that was an issue for myself. Maybe that's why I asked the question. A third of men said that they'd faked an orgasm, which is astonishing. You wouldn't think, have you ever faked an orgasm to a man? You go, ah. How large do you think the penis looms in culture and society and why? And based on what you learned from this... Uh, Uh, survey and what you learned in your historical research do you think that we are even actually having the right kind of conversations about penises in our culture i mean what's interesting if you look at it historically is sort of the shifts over time so i think we're in a weird place Mm. but you can sort of chart men's attitude to themselves in the world through the penis basically and it was about ten thousand bc before men realized they had any part of the reproductive process uh, and and before that, lots of the gods of the world were female because obviously, like, women were creating life as if from yes. nowhere. Yes. And so you have all these Venus and Villendorf and there seemed to be lots of female gods. About 10,000 BC, uh, men realised they were part of it. That's uh, pretty <laughs> impressive that it took that long. That's amazing. It is. Well, it gets even more amazing. So then gods became male as well as female and there were sort of celebrations of men and women if you're going to take it from the deities you know which is quite a healthy place to be if we're going to celebrate both of us we both create life and then you know we lost those sort of multitude of gods and um when it became monotheistic sexual shame came into things that 
changed a lot as well. And obviously we got this idea of basically one male god who decides everything. Mm. The belief was that men basically had homunculi, little men in their sperm, that they would plant inside the woman who was basically just some soil that they mm. would plant their seed in, and then that sperm would grow into a human being. So it had gone from the point of thinking only women were responsible for creation of life to basically men are responsible only for men. the creation of life, and women are just the fertiliser bag I put my... Yes. <laughs> my All of your lovely, little man my, seeds inside my little, of. My little fully formed little man crouched <laughs> up inside the sperm, who then grows into a baby. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's not surprising when you have these monotheistic religions that are nearly all quite... I mean, let's say they're a little bit sexist. And I think there was a sort of healthier attitude towards the pleasure of sex in different cultures. I mean, the Romans were sort of obsessed with erections and they have them everywhere. But it was sort of yes. for good luck, I think. You know, if you go to Pompeii, there's all these cocks drawn all over the place. <laughs> like a four-leaf clover. <laughs> They're just like a little lucky symbol of a, <laughs> of a penis. I wonder, this year, with everyone in lockdown, everyone relying a lot more on porn or trying to go on online dating apps and make a connection, do you feel like this particular year has changed anything? And if so, do you think it's changed it for the better or the worse? <laughs> I mean, if people are talking, I think that's good. You know, that's what we need to do. (laughs) But the positives of thinking, okay, well, look, we're not going to meet up. We've got to do this online. I think it should make people better at having conversations, discussing what they want from stuff. I think it's really that easy. You know, this you just ask people what they're interested in. It's not a big thing. And that's what I think the internet should have done. It sort of opens up and you go, oh, you know, 25 years ago, you know, oh, rimming's, oh, is this... Does that make me a pervert? Is this wrong? What will people think? Oh, uh, okay. Everyone's doing that? Ah, <laughs> I've okay. just seen all the porn on the internet. What I'm doing is not. not no. Yeah, not even <laughs> remotely in the neighbourhood <laughs> yeah. of perverted. It annoys me that people have this high and mighty judgmental attitude to lots and lots of things, and then you go online and go, this is what people really are. This is what men and women really are. And yeah. they say one thing and they do another thing. But it should be liberating because you should go, okay, there's at least... A hundred thousand people out there exactly like me, yeah, yeah. and probably a hundred million people exactly like me, or a billion people exactly like me. So it should be liberating in those ways. Talking, talking is all we have to do. Yeah, no, most of that shame kind of dies in the light. So I'm glad that you've helped facilitate a conversation that we all need to be having more. And the only reason I'm surreptitiously looking at my phone is because I have a timed task for you to complete okay. now, if you would indulge me. Um, sure. How many different names for penises can you name in one minute? Knob, Dick, Willy, Winky, Schmuck, um, uh, the bald-headed mouse, my wife's best friend, Percy, cock. Have I said? I don't think I've even said cock. Um, yogurt spitting python, uh, um, spam javelin, uh, the honourable member for fucking sure. That's one I made up. <laughs> fuck stick, fuck stick, fuck pole. Um, the uh, the pink lighthouse that wants to draw you onto its rocks was one of my favourite ones. I think. <laughs> uh, the sergeant with one blue stripe who. Always stands to attention. Um, Jack the Dripper, Rumple Foreskin. Um, I, I think I've forgotten. There'll definitely be some regular ones that I've forgotten. But you know, it's everything because you just say any name. John Thomas, isn't it? There's yes. Like those, yes, that's but basically true. any any name and yeah, anything. Peter Johnson. I think Herring yeah. is actually a really <laughs> yeah. Dan Dick. I'm, my name's Dick. Dick Herring. So do you so have my, a double phallic name? Dick, Dick. Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> Amazing. 
<laughs> um, thank you so much for opening up so much about your experience, your knowledge, your history and research on the penis and helping us to uh, bring a lot more of them to light. It's always my pleasure. It's my pleasure <laughs> to talk about penises. <laughs> Whatever our gender, we owe it to ourselves to have a positive relationship with our bodies, whatever that means to each individual person. So here, with a beautiful, fun, creative piece about bodies and making it through 2021 is The Main Tip is to Breathe by writer and performance artist Travis Alabanza, who performs the piece themselves as well. Lockdown feels like many things, but somehow amongst all the things it could feel like, we still make it a competition. It seems like even as the world is on fire, a deadly virus is spreading, waters rising, earth getting hotter, political uprisings in the street, and the last 12 months genuinely feeling like a bad futuristic horror made in the 90s, we will still find ways to compete. We can't brag about what event we are going to that no one else could ever go to, even if they tried really hard. So instead, try to brag about all the things we achieved during a forced government lockdown in the midst of a pandemic where people are dying that no one else could dream of achieving because we are the ultimate achievers of all things hard to achieve. I didn't think I'd fall for the trap. But as I wake up every day and scroll Twitter and see you all learning how to make a sourdough bread or do the couch to 10k over 10 times, pick up six languages, start another podcast, befriend your neighbours, turn your balcony into a garden centre or, or learn a new instrument, reconnect with old school friends, do yoga eight hours a day and become internet viral sensations on TikTok all before midday, I start to feel the pressure to achieve something to learn something, to do something. You know, suddenly, resting and looking after my mental health and, I don't know, staying alive feels all too basic in the middle of a pandemic. What can I do? What can I learn? What can I achieve to ultimately then post about on social media so that I can be congratulated? Applause emojis sent to me, an endorphin released. Order restored. So I ordered an anal training kit from Love Honey on week three of lockdown one that went from beginners to masters level in five steps and sizes. I got it on next day delivery with some lube and a new douche. I ordered it in all black because I wanted it to feel chic and it made the biggest size look slimmer, more obtainable. My version of the couch to 10k I guess. Yeah, It wasn't that I had never bottomed before, I've been committing eternal sin for a good ten years now, once actually in the storage room of a church. But that is a story for when I see you in hell. It's more that recently I had felt my quality control had been lacking. The rivers were not flowing as easily. The jigsaw had never quite seemed to fit. The... Oh, fuck this. They said this was a not suitable for work episode, so why the hell am I hiding behind a metaphor? I used to be able to take a big dick up my ass with no issue, and now even the average ones seem to be causing me some complications. I've tried googling why this has happened, and I do have some hunches. 
overconfidence, a lack of care from the giver, a development of more fear over time, too much work to focus on this, never being in one place long enough to check in with my ass, a decrease in frequency of use, some PTSD thrown in there for fun, and I guess I'll eventually blame capitalism. I do that for most things. But causes aside, I care about the outcomes more. I am too young to surrender to a life of painful anal sex. My ass is too cute to have already reached its peak in my mid-twenties. If people can learn a whole new language or how to make bread rise, I can relearn how to bottom during a national lockdown. It became a daily ritual, my allotted exercise time. The only moment not to be done via a Zoom screen. Yet. I would close the door in my shared house, put some books against it just in case, turn the lights onto a softer dim, burn an incense if I felt really in the mood, and begin my version of Couch to 10K without ever leaving my bed. I read all these articles on Cosmopolitan and sex threads on Reddit, all geared for people that have never done it before, telling you how to start and what to do. I acted as if I was new to sex, which, to be honest, at week five of lockdown, I might as well have been. I took mental notes down on the techniques they were suggesting, read out loud one of the mantras on a specific queer site that reminded me, I am my own pace. And so I entered the competition with myself and my anus, hoping for signs of growth, both metaphorically and literally. (sighs) Ten weeks later, and I have a draft tweet ready to send. It's a tweet with a picture. My ass on show and the second biggest dildo next to it, with all the other smaller ones within the background. I rewrite the caption a few times, but I settle on one. So proud to have become a better bottom this lockdown. Progressed from the small dildo to this bad boy. Only with time to pause and reflect could this have been achievable. Hashtag silver linings. Hashtag bottoms for socialism. Hashtag beats doing the Zoom quiz. Don't search for the tweet. Of course I never press send. I have about 21,000 people that follow me on Twitter and one of them is my mum. So I just saved it to drafts and instead sent a tweet congratulating my friend on teaching her dog how to fetch the remote. But I won't lie, it did feel like an achievement. It did feel like something that had progressed. It did feel like something to be proud of. So although I didn't send the tweet, it felt important to write it down retweet it in my own head, do an applause emoji to myself. Maybe I knew soon I'd be asked to write about it for a podcast available online and be paid to talk about it. Patience is a virtue and all that. It's weird though, because it did make me understand why everyone needed to feel like they had done something. Made me rethink this, not as a competition with each other, but more actually about reminding ourselves that we are still functioning that we can still do things, that we can still experience an emotion even when it feels like the world is taking a U-turn. In all the articles teaching me how to take a bigger dildo, the piece of advice that kept on coming up 
was to breathe. That it only works if you breathe. That even if you are scared or in pain or tense, that if you remember to breathe, it will make it easier. That to breathe is to be in tune with yourself, which means things can come and go, pass in and out more easily. The other tip that kept on coming up was about patience. That you can't just go to the biggest dildo straight away. That new things take small but consistent steps to get the hang of it. That if you try and sort it all out at once, then you are just setting yourself up for failure. To congratulate yourself on the little steps and keep on making them so eventually the big step isn't even a big step. I'd worked really hard consistently, so the second biggest dildo kind of felt like the smallest one by the end of it. Proper achievement. The tip that was on one of the articles, but not on the others, but it really stuck out to me, was it said, if it ain't feeling right, just stop. You don't have to push through. You can find another position, another tactic, another day to try again, but you have to find what works for you. There is no one way to do it. You can set your own angles, pace and permission. So as I went into doggy style for the second time that Wednesday, I thought about that advice and I couldn't figure out if I was thinking about the pandemic or bottoming or both. If all these ways that people were competing were actually just people finding their own tactics to cope with what feels unmanageable. That they were just getting up another day to try again from another angle to feel alive. That in order for us to get through this, we have to breathe that we have to try and connect with our breath, to take pause as things go in and out of our new streams, our conscious, our understanding, that if we are patient with ourselves, not expect ourselves to know how to deal with a global pandemic or a seven-inch dildo straight away, to remind ourselves it could be little, tiny, consistent steps, then maybe it would feel easier. My friend learned Spanish, but says her accent needs work on. I still said well done. I have watched the video of my other mate's dog collect the remote about 10 times already. She's disappointed that the dog can't also grab her dressing gown. I said it's still pretty impressive. And I have gone from the small dildo to the second biggest. Yeah, I can't quite work on the master one yet, but sometimes it is about congratulating yourself on where you are at. On the little steps that take you to the bigger one of continuing to to push through and then to just lube up and keep going. We've got plenty of fucking time. That was Travis Alabanza. Simple as it sounds, it's probably the only piece of advice that we could all use this year. Breathe and don't push yourself too hard. And I also have it on good authority that Travis has now also conquered the master level dildo. So congratulations to them. Pew, pew, pew. Just goes to show, go at your own pace and you're going to get there in the end. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But there is one key voice we haven't heard from yet. A group that we don't ever really hear enough from when we're talking about sex in the digital age, the actual workers operating in the sex industry. Cybertease is a really interesting example. Now, they are a unionized collective of sex workers who, in response to the pandemic, started up an online strip club, which has been doing really well. Their organization raised a lot of attention and interest because consumers were switching from real-life strip clubs to online ones to adapt to COVID, keeping their old rituals going but adapting them to a new medium. So, I spoke to Aya and April from Cybertease to hear more about workers' rights under the pandemic and into the future. Hi, I'm April Fiasco. I'm one of the co-organisers at Cybertease and I also co-artistic direct at Sexquisite Events. So we run online cowboy shows where sex workers perform and they perform like other types of art such as poetry, burlesque, rap. We're also working on a device show written and created by sex workers at the moment, which we're crowdfunding for. That's going to be a digital show that people can watch. I'm Aya Angel. I'm a co-founder, organiser and resident performer at Cybertease. Would you mind telling us more about what Cybertease is, uh, what makes it unique in the uh, sex industry and in the arts industry? We're all members of the United Voices of the World sex worker branch of the union that basically advocates for better conditions in strip clubs and for full decriminalisation of all sex work. And one day, one of the Cybertees members was like, oh, shall we set up a virtual strip club because everything had just shut down? And a few of us were like, yeah, that sounds great. We're like an interactive, inclusive virtual strip club. And what makes us stand out is that we put an emphasis on socialism and workers' rights. So we try to model our events on what we would really like to see implemented in strip clubs. So inclusivity, a co-op structure. We also like do quite a lot of frequent collabs of other organisations. Like from day one, we've um, had Queer House Party DJing for us um, and they're a DJ collective and an online queer party. So that's really beneficial because there's a lot of like intersection with sex workers' rights and queer rights. So it's really good that we have this community that bonds us together like the recruitment for us is also really important because as you might know like traditional strip clubs can be very like outdated in their idea of what is you know sexy and what customers want to see you know they think everyone wants to see skinny white women and that's not the case for everyone 
We try to prioritize applications from people who are marginalized, people who might not be able to get auditions in traditional strip clubs, um, especially people with like disabilities, whether that's like apparent or not. You know, we we just want people to feel like they're not excluded in any way from traditional societal norms. You were speaking earlier, and I want to get into the subject of decriminalization and destigmatization of sex work. So currently in the UK, it is legal to do full service sex work, but you're not allowed to work with other people because that makes it brothel keeping, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because working with other people makes it safer. Yes. And some MPs want to introduce something called the Nordic model, which has been implemented in Sweden and similar countries, where they criminalise the buyer but not the sex worker with the idea that this reduces the demand for sex work and therefore sex workers won't have to do sex work as much, which is ridiculous because that's actually taking away sex workers' livelihood and income. So if you're saying that sex work is wrong and you want sex workers to exit sex work, you're not helping sex workers to be able to exit sex work because you're just increasing the stigma. So how are sex workers supposed to find a job in a non-sex work environment if you're saying that sex work is bad? Then non-sex work employers are not going to be like, oh, let's employ all the sex workers to give them a job. Like, it doesn't make any sense. You need to work on destigmatizing sex work. And you need to work on increasing minimum wage and London living wages. So there are alternative forms of employment if people don't want to do sex work anymore. And you also need to support us and not do things that actually make it more dangerous for sex workers and more stigma for sex workers. For some reason, sex workers are just right at the bottom of the pile. We're just like, you're just a sex worker. We don't even think you're a sex worker because we think you've been trafficked and we don't know the difference between sex work and sex trafficking. But like, in your opinions, don't really matter. But like... I think people just don't realise that sex workers are everywhere. You probably have friends, like colleagues, family members who are sex workers, but because they don't feel safe to come out to you because of the way the world treats sex workers, you think that they're this weird group that you never meet that stay underground, and that's not true. We're equals to everyone else in this world, and we deserve the same amount of rights, the same amount of respect, and anyone who doesn't think that is... fucking idiot (laughs) well yeah they just are unfortunately very ignorant about what sex work is ignorant and bigoted a big reason for people to regulate sex work is like under the guise of labor exploitation but really if you think about it labor exploitation in sex work should just be seen as the same as like any other industry and yes it shouldn't be treated any differently you know we shouldn't criminalize sex work because people are exploited we should really get to the root of the problem you know sex work needs to be seen as not inherently harmful or empowering Mm. it's neither you know it's Mm. just work like working at a warehouse is neither empowering or inherently harmful it just depends on your working conditions and sex work should be seen as exactly the same as that this conversation about the state of sex workers rights is so frustrating i mean How far have we really come in being more progressive about our views around sex, sexuality, and sex work when everything still feels real Victorian? Well, here's someone who can potentially help us answer that question. Dr. Kate Lister, a sex historian and an academic at Leeds Trinity University. Hello, Kate. Uh, Would you please tell everyone listening a little bit about you and your work? I'm a historian and I research the history of sex with a particular emphasis on the history of sex work and what might be considered 
illicit, naughty or deviant sex, the kind of sex that gets hushed up, you know, the kind of sex that's not the missionary position once a week with the lights off, that kind of sex. And I run the online research project Whores of Yore, Mm -hmm. and I published A Curious History of Sex last year. I'm also really passionate about how history informs the present, and that's where it has to be useful, I think. So I try and use it very much to inform debates that are going on now and make it relevant. I've always been fascinated by sex. And I think what kind of interests me about it is the fact that it's a pretty much universal experience. You know, the mechanics of sex, the the, the pursuit of an orgasm, the feeling horny, the being attracted to someone. So that's like a huge level of throughout history. That's something we have in common with Henry VIII or Alexander the Great or any of these people. But also paradoxically, It's something that's so fraught with inequality and shame and stigma, despite the fact that it's such a universal experience. And we've really fucked it up. That's what kind of gets my attention about it is we've got this act that is, in essence, can be very pleasurable and is a uniting experience. And yet each culture around the world throughout each period of history has had its own rituals, shaming, stigma, ideas of what's okay, laws around it. And I'm just fascinated by that. So I think there's something that it's a really human experience. No other creature on the planet does this. Wildebeest start wandering around on the plains freaking out because they've got a latex fetish or, you know, because they fancy other boy wildebeests. We do this. We get so upset. I'm really fascinated by that. So I, <laughs> I am really interested to know a little bit more about the use and the role of sex work in society. So... I've been a sex worker. I sugared my way throughout my PhD. And it's kind of weird is that at the time, I I didn't really even think of it as sex work. <laughs> I thought of it as if I go on Tinder, I can have sex with these idiots for free. Yeah. Or if, I, <laughs> if, if I go on the yep. secret arrangements apps, I can have sex with idiots who'll pay my rent. But it's true. At some point you go, this is work for me. This is something that I'm putting out that I'm not getting as much back from as I am giving. Why not make this an equitable arrangement? Because there are plenty of people who would be fine with that, actually, if you just said so. What you've just said right there, that is the essence of sex work right back to day dot. And I know that there are people that shame it and say it's positive and all the rest of it. And that's absolutely a part of it. And you can't deny it. But the bottom line is that sex has a value. And in a deeply patriarchal and unfair capitalist society, it has always provided a way for people to make a lot of money in a very short space of time. That, that, okay. That's held true throughout history. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that it's so shamed and stigmatized is the power balance within it, because we've long shamed female sexuality mm-hmm. and the sex worker becomes a repository for that. And also, in a strange way, they've kind of beat the system. <laughs> Yeah. Not everybody, you know, and I wouldn't want to think that's a universal experience. The fact that they've worked that out and they've got their shit together. I think there's something that is independent about it. And there's something that I never want to say empowering because I don't like this idea that it's got to be empowering to be valid. Mm, But it has throughout history allowed primarily women a way of making money for themselves. Always has. And a value outside of the patriarchal system. I mean, is this an impossible question to answer? Would sex work exist outside of patriarchy? It's a good I mean, I think I think it would because women buy sex and men sell sex. I think it would look very different. I think mm. that if you didn't have capitalism, it would yeah. look very different. But after, yeah. I mean, we're all selling something, right? That's capitalism. 
And when you've got a capitalist society that disadvantages primarily women, and when we're mm-hmm. so hung up about sex and full of shame and like, oh, just, I really don't know what, oh, I can't, can't talk to anybody about this, you create a situation where people can go to sex workers, buy sex. That's the market. Those are the market forces. In this episode, we are talking quite a bit about sex workers' rights. And I was hoping that you might be able to help us contextualize that conversation around like decriminalization of that, destigmatization of that. So one of the most fascinating and frustrating things about studying the history of sex work is what you're trying to always get hold of are the actual voices of the people selling sex themselves. And they are always just out of sight. They're just out of reach. You can find chapter and verse about what lawmakers, moralizers, doctors, preachers thought about it. Mm. You can't find the actual voice of the people themselves. It's only really in the 20th century, the 21st century, that the voices of sex workers are really starting to come through, Mm. largely because of social media has played a huge part in that and the anonymity and allowing communities to form together. Obviously, sex workers have always been here, but how do they stand up and fight for their rights when if they identify themselves in many cultures, they'll be arrested? Yeah. And that creates a highly exploitative situation. But the seeds of the modern sex worker rights movement in the UK, so the English Collective of Prostitutes, they started in 1975. Okay. They've been amazing work, almost like union for sex workers, which is what you need when you're yes. stigmatised and you can't yeah. speak for yourself. Yeah. And then there's Swarm, the sex worker advocacy and resistance movement. They're 10 years old. So these are people doing amazing work in the UK right now to represent sex workers and fight for their rights. But it's so difficult to fight for your rights when if you stand up and you say, hello, I'm being discriminated against, you'll probably be arrested. Yeah. Or even if you're not arrested, you have to out yourself as a sex worker. Yes. Which is not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. And particularly when there are so many of us who have done just little bits of sex work here and there who like don't. I mean, I wasn't thinking about what I was doing as sex work when I was working as a dom. I was like, this is fun. It's like an acting job that I'm actually getting paid for for once. Cool. You know, (laughs) the outfits are great. I'm learning about all this stuff. And then it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, that's sex work. And I belong to a long history of women who have participated in this. There are so many women and men, people who have participated in this. And I think if we actually recognize what we did and were to say, yeah, I was a sex worker too, we'd see that it was probably more people than not. Do you know that is so true? Like gathering data and statistics on sex work is inherently problematic. Even today, we don't have accurate figures because how do you poll everybody? How do you get access to everybody? Are they going to tell the truth? I've often thought if you could ever do that, if you could ever get an accurate reading, Mm -hmm. I think that the results would absolutely blow people's brains away because we have such stigmatized views of what sex work is that it skews it to the point where you could be doing sex work and I could be doing sex work. And we're there going, we're totally not doing sex work. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell are you doing? And those people, I would never, ever pay for the services of a sex worker. Really? Mm -hmm. Do you watch porn? Do you watch porn online? Yeah. What do you think those people are doing? doing? You've just employed the services of a sex worker. That person is being paid to provide the service for you so you can jerk off. You have consumed yeah. sex work, basically. But we have yeah. this idea of, like, it's not us. And that's part of the problem, because if we could all be a bit more honest about it, I think that our understanding and attitudes to it would change overnight. Yeah, I'm just having this beautiful imagination of this sort of I am Spartacus moment with everyone who thinks. Because the thing is, like, if you're not a sex worker, then you're just someone who's paid a sex worker. Like, you're on one side or the other. Like you said, even if you've looked at porn. 
Yeah, we should have an I am Sliticus moment. That yes. Be <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying the I am Sliticus hashtag I am Sliticus. is <laughs> waiting to be born and spread around this world. I think that that is incredible. And I would love to see everyone have that awakening of their right? own sort of like, oh, Oh, I guess so, because I think it's not long after you have that awareness that you go, well, am I ashamed of that or not? Right. I guess I'm not. Okay, so now what? I had like a long time to think about as well. I was like, am I ashamed of that? I thought, no, am I bollocks? No. Why would I be ashamed of that? I paid my way. I supported myself throughout my studies. Everyone was consensual. And I think as well, the other thing is that we've got to do is stop this. It's often referred to as the hierarchy. So this idea that people mm. that people go, yeah, so I'm a dominant, but you know, I'm not a prostitute. We need to stop doing that. If you're selling yeah. a sexual service, these are your Sluticus sisters. Yes, you know, exactly. let's not distance ourselves. But there's a whole like thing of that, like people selling pictures on OnlyFans will swear down. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a sex worker. I just take pictures of my pussy because I just I like doing it. It's just no, you're not. You're paying your bills. Yes, it just just makes me happy. But also, there's still so far to go. Any representations that you have in the media or documentaries or things like that tend to be horrendously sensationalized mm-hmm. and quite exploitative. What you tend to get is a representation of either the I earn 10,000 pounds a night people or the I am selling sex in the streets to feed a drug habit people. And both of these things are true. But in the middle of that, there is a huge yeah. swathe of people who are just trying to pay their fucking bills. Yes. And yes. you don't see them or hear from them. So we've still got a very skewed view of it. Yeah sex workers are still discriminated against paypal will close down the account of anyone it thinks is selling sex like that even Mm -hmm. though selling sex is completely legal sex workers are still being evicted from properties they're still being discriminated against if a nurse reveals that she has been or is currently a sex worker she will be dismissed wow like that yeah to kind of focus on sex during the pandemic, right? I mean, I definitely know just from the areas that I've been connected to how difficult it has been for sex workers during yeah. this past year to be able to continue to make a living. Yeah. Obviously, it's not the first time we've had a global plague. So if you could talk to us a little bit about the history yeah. of how sex work has functioned during times of war, pandemic, trauma, how has that worked? Do you know, it's something strange happens to people when they go through trauma on a national scale like this. War is a really particular example of it. When war comes along, sex work is right there. And I don't know if it's the kind of the juxtaposition of the threat of death (laughs) that just kind of flicks something in your head that goes, well, I have a blowjob then. But whenever in the First World War and the Second World War, sex work was a huge issue for all fighting armies, all of them. Because if you're sending teenagers to go and die Mm -hmm. on the front line, And there's war ravaging everything and there's poverty in the countries because they're at war. Then you've Mm -hmm. just created the perfect situation for people to go, well, let's sell some sex. Let's have a good time. Let's party. And venereal disease at one point counted for more hospitalizations than any injuries sustained (laughs) on the battlefront. Grenades and bullet wounds over here. VD over there. VD (laughs) was the biggest cause of uh, loss of manpower in both the First and the Second World War. So this was a massive issue of how the hell do we control it? What do we do? How do we... In the First World War, everyone started off by going, we'll just tell them not to do it. <laughs> oh, abstinence-only education, because that's yeah, that always one. worked every time we've used it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, but then in the Second World War, they kind of learned the lessons-ish. <laughs> so the men were at least issued with condoms and some attempt to educate them and to control venereal disease. The target of all of the campaigns was blame women. 
Yes. You get all these posters that say things like, she may not be clean, good time girls don't lead to good time, blah, 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 and all this yeah. stuff. But they were right there. Sex work thrives in these kind of conditions. So the problem that we've got in, in the pandemic is, and again, it's because of the stigmatization around sex work, they can't be furloughed. So what's <laughs> happened is most people in sex work have been left with no income mm. and no help and no support. And so, again, it's been a grassroots movement amongst the sex workers themselves to try and organise. Swarm, who I mentioned, they started a sex worker hardship fund and they managed to raise, I think it was over a quarter of a million pounds, through donations from the community themselves, from everyone, from, you know, like the the big earning cam girls through to everyone was just pitching in to try and get money and support to people and been left with nothing. There's a charity where I live in Leeds called Basis, and they've been helping women for 30 years. And the entire pandemic, because I've been volunteering with them, it has been about sourcing food parcels and money, perhaps for electricity and vouchers and getting them out to women every single day. So because these women, they don't want to work if it's dangerous. They want to help, too. But if you put people in a position where they have nothing, no money, no money to feed their kids, nothing, they're going to have to work. But a lot of people have moved to online sex work, which is, I suppose, my OnlyFans has suddenly become this kind of like, oh, look, there's a thing over there doing that, right? It's because people have had to move, shift and adapt. And that's what sex work has done all throughout history. They adapt very, very quickly. Yeah, I am Sluticus. I am Sluticus. Yeah, since forever, human contact and human intimacy is a need. It's in that Maslow triangle somewhere, I'm certain of it. On the whole, we crave bodies. We crave sex. Even in the most difficult circumstances, in plagues and wars and crises, we still want and need to find ways to connect. Sometimes that expresses itself in really healthy ways, and a lot of times it doesn't. But it's a reality that we cannot look away from. So let's all stop being silent about sex work and come out and say, I am Slutticus. So, Slutticuses, Slutica? Slutikai? I'm gonna go with Slutikai. Here we are in our third and final act, where we get kinky with it. Inside the human dwelling, we enter the sleeping quarters. But there is no sleeping going on here. What first appears to be one large torso with eight writhing limbs is in fact two of the species engaged in coitus. The female of the form is louder with her carnal exclamations and can be heard cooing. Oh my God, just there, don't stop. We also hear her partner's more muted grunting and groaning which grows in volume as he journeys towards ejaculation. As they reach the cresting waves of their mutual peak, let us step away from the scene and humbly contemplate the ever-turning cycle of life and the joy and pleasure of the human mating ritual. Keep at it, you filthy animals. So since we're going down this rabbit hole of sex, bodies, and ritual... Let's talk about kink and fetish, because really, that's the peak place where sex and ritual overlap, right? Rules and rituals can be a glorious way to deepen intimacy and sensation. Within the restrictions of agreed dynamics, you can be totally free 
and connected. But it can also be a way to sidestep intimacy and play out a fantasy that doesn't rely on deep connection, that's purely about a fetishized fantasy and physical sensation. It can also be a way to work some stuff out. Almost like therapy, really? So... How did the kink and fetish world respond to this time of separation, isolation, and alienation? How did it shift the role of ritual? Did people find and invent ways of imaginatively overcoming restrictions to continue their kinky pursuits throughout our pandemic year? Let's find out. So I had first heard about this party from friends of mine, and I was really intrigued by the idea of going to a sex party that was purely virtual and online. I mean, I was just going out of my mind with boredom. So this sounded like something really spicy um, to spice up all of the days of, you know, unending sameness. Some of the house rules included a dress code, which was basically kinky and sexy. And there were house rules about consent and it was forbidden to film or record any part of the party. So that made me feel safe. The party also promised to be kink friendly, um, sex positive. So these were all very encouraging signs. My husband helped me get dressed for the party by tying some rope around my chest in a kind of like a sexy harness. And I put some knickers on and some high heels, although it felt a bit strange to wear high heels in my own living room without having to go anywhere. When I first opened the screen, I just saw all these windows of people in various states of undress. There were friends, couples, singles, and everyone had taken such a great effort to dress themselves up. It was just a visual feast. And after all of the days in lockdown, it just felt super exciting and really visually stimulating as well. And I remember there were about 72 people when I entered the party. And looking at each one of them was just a treat. There was someone chained to a toilet. There were people eating sandwiches while wearing full latex suits. There were masked foursomes dancing. And it was just so full of visual stimuli that I, you know, I couldn't help but get turned on right away. And... One of the interesting things that the party offered was the opportunity to be in a virtual dark room with anyone else whose consent you had secured. So I just started chatting with a couple of people, you know, paid compliments to people whose outfits I found interesting or whose setup looked cool. And I started chatting with this one woman. And after a brief but pleasant chat, we agreed that we would like to enter a virtual darkroom together. So to be in a private chat away from the general public. We both had toys and we just kind of watched each other pleasure ourselves. And it was the first time I'd ever really done that with a complete stranger. And I was really surprised at how natural it felt, but just so easy and also safe. And I ended up chatting with a couple of other people and landing back in a Zoom breakaway room with another woman and two other couples, which was a lot, I think, for my first time at a virtual sex party. I think I kind of (laughs) had my fill after two or three hours. (laughs) Sounds like a lot, but yeah, Zoom is also really, um, yeah, there's such a thing as Zoom fatigue. So I had like Zoom sex party fatigue after like three hours. 
The really funny thing is I had to wake my husband up to untie me from my rope harness at three in the morning. So he got a little teaser of what went on for that night. But I was just super surprised how welcoming and sexy and friendly it all felt. And it was a fun thing to do without the pressure of being at an in-person party and definitely without the danger of having to interact with people at the height of the pandemic. So I'm Joshua Basto, also commonly known in the King of Fetch scene as Thumper. I also run a company, I'm the chairperson of an LGBTQ plus organisation which focuses on kink and fetish. Throughout the pandemic, the kink and fetish scene has been hit quite hard, like every other minority community. For me, the kink and fetish scene was a sort of release for me, a sort of way and place where I could be myself without judgement from anyone. And without that, being there, without me able to go to the clubs and go to the events that I used to go to, it can feel quite isolating, especially at a time where you can't do anything else. You feel especially isolated from the community that looked after you, the community that you feel comfortable in. But the clubs that are really struggling to survive at the moment are the smaller community clubs. They are the queer events and the queer spaces and it's putting a lot of strain on people wondering if when we come out of this will queer spaces still be there and will there be spaces that are open to kink and fetish or will they try to go more mainstream to try and support income which obviously they need to do they need to get money they need to get money in but is that going to be the sacrifice of queer venues is that going to be the sacrifice of kink and fetish inclusive venues I do think it's amazing the capacity that we all have to get creative and find ways to reach out to each other in a global pandemic to keep romance and sex alive. I think a lot of us have had a reckoning with our bodies, which have been adjusting to more and more time at home, often alone. We have had a reckoning with relationships and how they respond under pressure. We have had a reckoning with our desire for intimacy and romance and sex and sexuality, whether single or in a relationship. And we have adapted and been super fucking creative and have been as resilient as we possibly could have been. But I do wonder how all of this is going to affect us moving forward. So... To look into the future, I thought we'd try to look into the past. For the final time this episode, let's go back to our good friend, Kate Lister. So I'm curious, Dr. Lister, based on examples from history, how do you expect to see our sex culture now evolve? So I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, and I'm really not sure because I can see on one hand that we could have another roaring 20s. Mm-hmm. I think having like lived through the pandemic, it gives you a real understanding of what people in the past went through. Yep. Coming out of the First World War, they'd had not only the Spanish flu, which killed between 50 and 100 million people mm-hmm. worldwide, mm-hmm. but they'd just come out of the First World War, which was an absolute meat grinding of awful carnage. Yeah. And they were ready to party. Yep. And I totally get what the Roaring Twenties were about. You know, fuck it, let's drink gin and put on short skirts. Yep. Let's do this. Yeah. You know, the flappers came out of it and jazz. And, and there was a real sense of sexual freedom 
in the air. And I can totally understand that having lived by myself. So I've not been anywhere for a year. And, you know, I can see myself chasing people around to lick them up the legs when, you know, we're allowed out again. But I'm also wonder what will a year of being scared to be around other people do to us psychologically? Even if Johnson came out tomorrow and went, it's all over, it's done. We beat it. Coronavirus has surrendered. Hurrah. Uh, It's completely fine. Would we feel safe being around people? Because like, we've spent a whole year now in this state of hyper-awareness to the point where if I go at the supermarket and someone gets too near, yes. I have like this reaction of like, yep. whoa, 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 just you and your breath, go away. Yeah. <laughs> One meter away from me. Yes. The psychological ramifications. And like, I don't want to oversell but this has been a state of trauma for mm-hmm. a year. Yes, it has. And it has been shit for everybody. What you're dealing with is varying degrees of shit. Yeah. It's shit for people who live by themselves. It's shit for people in couples. It's mm-hmm. shit for people trying to homeschool their kids. Mm-hmm. It's shit across the board. Yeah. So the psychological ramifications of this are going to be with us for a long fucking time. Yeah. And I just don't know what they're going to do. I, I like to think that, you know, being an optimist, that we will value just being around each other. Judging from what everyone's saying, everyone's raring to be allowed off the naughty step again. Yeah. We're absolutely just like, oh my God, I can't wait, I can't wait. And it's like the happy thought. Yeah. So I, when I'm optimistic, I feel that we'll value connection and we'll want to be around each other more. Well, there you have it. Maybe we are all about to head into the next big sexual revolution. I certainly hope so. There have been enough restrictions on this last year. We all deserve a little sexual freedom. And maybe, just maybe, it'll make us all more progressive about sex, body, sexuality, and the sex industry. Maybe we'll start demanding that porn be more LGBTQ plus friendly, less racist, less misogynistic, more body positive and inclusive, more sex positive. Maybe we'll start improving sex workers' rights. Maybe we'll start teaching sex properly in schools. We'll start teaching about intimacy and desire and initiation. How many damn sets of sheets you're going to need in the future? Maybe we will all know what it is we really want from relationships or from being on our own. Maybe it'll be a utopian fuckfest of free love. I don't know, but I'm getting tickets early. I think we've all seen from this podcast that there really is no one right way to skin the relationship cat, but there are so many different beautiful ways. I wanted to leave you with one more. I'm leaving you with this piece by spoken word artist and poet Holly McNish about what family means to her. Despite rose-scented media portrayals of heterosexual married family bliss undoubtedly demystifying over the space of my lifetime, this domestic setup has still been firmly forced into my mental space as the pinnacle of possible living arrangements. By television, by every Christmas film I ever watched, as a child of separated parents begs Santa Claus to get them back together again by car insurance premiums and housing design and a language with no words to describe family connections unless in-law is certified by the government. The concept of a nuclear family unit has been one of the heaviest and achingly pressurised ideas of my life, belittling all human relationships which do not fit its minuscule view of what family should look like. I live very happily with my daughter, a co-parent with her father who lives five minutes away. I have a boyfriend 300 miles away. I felt guilty about not living up to the idealised concept of family for years. The most annoying part of this guilt is 
I don't believe in it. I never have. Since I was little, family for me has meant so much more than this. I have one sibling, and we are extremely close, but I hold many of my cousins and friends just as close. Since I left home at 18, I've visited grandparents as much as my parents. My mum is still undoubtedly the person who supported me most, but on a day-to-day basis, I rely mainly on exceptionally loving friends for emotional and practical support. My daughter is an only child, as we love to label it, and I've been told on several occasions she will be lonely unless I put my body through, for me, the very frightening task of childbirth again. Each time I start to feel selfish or guilty for not giving her a sibling, as if it were a simple gift to give, I think of these cousins and friends and know that she'll be fine. I've not enjoyed lockdown at all, but if it has taught me anything, it has taught me to finally let go of this ideal and this guilt, because from what I could see, even the most traditional of nuclear family units struggle just as much as the rest of us, if not, in many cases, more. No matter how much I love my child or my partner, time to myself, without fulfilling these roles in any way is an absolute treat. I missed my boyfriend like an ache some days during lockdown, but honestly, the idea of trying to be a girlfriend or wife every day is not something I enjoy, especially on top of being a mother. What's more, the relationship we developed over lockdown was beautiful. Online chess sprinkled throughout the day, him reading to me in the bath or bed once my daughter was asleep each night. Plus, masturbation. I missed being touched, of course, but masturbation in lockdown was a joy, something I could do exactly when I wanted, how I wanted, without the pressures of pleasing someone else after a day juggling homeschooling, daily exercise with a child and a full-time job. Because I co-parent, I had time off, so to speak, to get on with work, to go for a cycle at an actual adult pace, to stare at a wall and eat biscuits, whatever, no one's watching. I've often felt guilty how much I love having a couple of days each week not parenting. But one of the biggest gripes I heard from married parents during lockdown was that their partners and kids were there all the fucking time. I'm not saying if you're happily married with two kids that's not great. What I'm saying is that of all the social units I passed each day going for their daily walks, it seemed to be those family groups, kids dragging moaning heels behind two parents, all out together to participate in some sort of enforced daily family time that undoubtedly looked the most deflated. And who, on many days, as I walked alone or with my daughter or with a friend, I felt the most relieved not to be living up to. And that, my friends, was Holly McNish. And I hope that she and her partner do get to see each other as soon as international travel picks back up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of That Podcast. And I cannot wait to see the hashtag IamSleticus trending on socials. Go on the internet. Make it happen. Part two of That Podcast, in which we look at rituals, relationships, sex and bodies, and which is definitely NSFW, so don't listen with your kids, was hosted by Desiree Birch and featured Richard Herring, Cybertease, Dr. Kate Lister, Luke Kempner as David Attenborough and contributions from members of the public. The Main Tip is to Breathe was written and performed by Travis Alabanza and directed by Jennifer Baxt, with sound design by Helen Atkinson. Family Life in Lockdown was written and performed by Holly McNish, with sound design by Ben Walker. 
The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt and Desiree Birch. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Story Glass and ETT co-production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.